Do you ever wonder if you're getting anywhere in life? Because at times it can feel like there's, there's always lots of promising beginnings followed by spectacular failures. Um, supporting the England football team is, is a lot like that in uh, major competitions. Things can start off so brightly, but before too long they just start to turn pear-shaped and we're left disillusioned and confused and lacking the desire to, to keep on going and, and to start again. Well, the Christian life can be exactly like that too. We can find ourselves making resolutions to, to pray each day um, for, for an hour. And we do well for the first ten minutes or so. And then find things just, just peter out. Or maybe there's a particular sin that we've been struggling with for years and years and years and we get to a point where again we've let ourselves down, we've let God down and we resolve that this is going to be the last time that we do it. From now on we're not going to do that particular thing again. But sure enough we find ourselves making the same mistake again and again and we wonder Am I really getting anywhere in my Christian life? It just seems to be a continuous cycle of promising beginnings and spectacular failings. And I guess if we're honest, each of us here will have experienced these thoughts and these feelings at different times in our life. And actually, each of us here needs to listen to what Peter has to say to us in his, his second letter. One of the books I've been reading in preparing for this um, described this letter as the mature reflections of an impetuous disciple. And I guess as you think of Peter's life story, you can't help but notice that he experienced his, his fair share of promising stars and spectacular failings. When Jesus called him, he changed his name to, to Peter, saying that on this rock he would build his church. What a start. Peter leaped out of a boat to walk on water and was doing great until he noticed the, the waves and the wind and took his eyes off Jesus and then started to sink. Peter was the first to publicly declare that Jesus was the Christ but straight after, he, 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 he showed us that he totally misunderstood the nature of Jesus' mission and just wouldn't have it at all that Jesus would, would have to suffer and die on the cross. And of course, after Jesus was, was arrested, Peter, in a, in a whirlwind of, of panic and confusion and mixed emotions, denied ever knowing Jesus three times and was absolutely devastated by that. Perhaps that was his, his lowest point. But that wasn't the end for Peter. In Acts chapter 2, we read that Peter stands up in front of the crowds at Pentecost and preaches the gospel fearlessly. Jesus had just been crucified in that city just a few weeks earlier 
And here Peter stands up and confronts the crowds with the truth that they had killed the Messiah and that they are in trouble with God. And we read that thousands of people became Christians that day. Well, later on in Acts and in Galatians chapter 2, we read of, of a severe disagreement that Peter had with Paul. And again, Peter learned another valuable lesson, this time about always being consistent to the teaching he'd received and passed on. So by anyone's reckoning, Peter had lived an eventful and fascinating life. And uh, in, in 2 Peter, we find him towards the end of his days. If you look over to, to verse 14 of chapter 1, Peter says, Because I know that I will soon put it aside... Oh, let me read verse 13 as well. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. So we get the sense that this is Peter's final sermon, if you like. His, his last words. This is the legacy that he wants to, to leave behind him. From all his, his experiences of the Christian life, these are the essential truths he wants to, to, to leave behind. These are the matters of utmost importance. This is what the Christian life is all about. And if, like me, you're wondering, am I getting anywhere in, this Christian, in my Christian life? Well, Peter's got masses to say to us. Uh, 1 Peter, chapter 1, and verse 1, tells us that... Uh, that Peter was writing to Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor. And that, that's modern day Turkey. Um, suffering and persecution are, are issues that, that come up in, in 1 Peter. But a kind of opposition that these Christians were facing at this time in the, in the early AD 60s would not have been as fierce as they were to become later once Nero started clamping down on Christians, trying to stamp out Christianity. But having said that, they would have faced considerable derision and discrimination, perhaps not too dissimilar to um, the way things are, are moving in the West today. The churches that he's writing to, scattered throughout um, modern-day northern Turkey, were also being ravaged by false teaching. And Peter's writing to sort them out, to bash their heads together. False teachers were, were casting doubt over God's promises. They were asking, where is Jesus? He said he was going to come back. Well, where is he? It's been a number of years and he's still not here. And they said, if he's not coming back, well, what does that mean for the rest of this gospel that you guys preach? It seems that the, the false teachers also maintained that, that knowledge was what was all important. And that knowledge dispensed with the need for morality. Intellectual assent to truths 
was all that was needed. Because actually these guys taught that holiness is just an impossible dream. They also widely taught that suffering for the gospel is not true to God's purposes. And that as Christians we shouldn't expect to have to suffer for being a Christian. So if guys like Paul and Peter and the other apostles, if they are suffering, well surely that means we can ignore what they have to say. So these were some of the the extremely dangerous teachings that Peter is writing to refute. And we'll see in future weeks in in chapter 2 and chapter 3 in particular where he deals with some of these things head on and doesn't mince his words at all. But it's interesting to, to, to see that some of those false, some of that false teaching that was around then is actually still around in our society and churches today. And a lot of these ideas and priorities ring true with the prevailing mindset in society today. The idea that actually lifestyle and character, that's you know, not too important really. It's what you, it's what you know. That's, that's what matters. But even then, it's all relative anyway, so it doesn't really matter what you believe, just as long as you do believe in something. So Peter writes in that situation. And he, right from the outside, he makes it crystal clear what his priorities are. Just look down at verse 2. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Knowledge was all important to these false teachers. And Peter there in verse 2 says that grace and peace comes only through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So Peter is actually writing to explain to them what true knowledge of God is and the importance of sticking to that true knowledge of God and not being swayed by anything else that other people are trying to to say. Knowledge comes up again and again and again in this letter. And for Peter, true knowledge of God is not just an intellectual exercise. It's not enough just to, to know about Jesus. What he's after is a knowledge that leads to a vibrant, living faith that works. In other words, knowing Jesus must um, overflow naturally into obeying Jesus. That's the, the central message of other books in the New Testament, like James. Remember James saying that faith without deeds is dead. So that's the big theme for this first part of of Peter's letter. Real faith works. And so Peter begins by outlining for us what true Christian living is all about. In verses 3 to 4 he outlines for us the basis for true Christian living. Verses 5 to 9 he looks at the content of true Christian living and in verses 10 and 11 he looks at the results of of true Christian living 
So first of all then, the basis. And Peter packs some incredible truths into these um, verses 3 and 4. Let me just read them again to you. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. The first thing that Peter wants to to say to us before outlining the the content of of what true Christian living is about, he says, this is the basis. And the first thing he says is that we have an all-sufficient saviour. The basis for for true Christian living is all centred on Jesus and what he's done for us. He's the one who's taking the initiative here. He called us by his own glory and goodness. Glory here is is a descriptive word and it refers to to his inherent nature, his, his character, if you like. Goodness here is an active word and it refers to a kind of virtue in action. But there's also a very strong um, image as well to, the, to this word. But actually we see both of these things supremely at the cross. At the cross, that's where we see supremely Jesus' glory and his goodness at work. So Peter's saying that it's through the cross that we have been called and saved. But that actually is much more than that. In the cross, in Jesus, we have been given everything we need for life and godliness. The cross makes us right with God. But more than that, the cross provides the power we need to live out this true Christian life. So if we're struggling as we seek to live out a Christian life and we feel that we're getting nowhere, then we have to be encouraged by this. By God's grace, we've been called into a relationship with him. And by God's grace, we've been given all the resources and all the the power we need in Jesus to enable us to be obedient. So this is the the first basis for true Christian living, an all-sufficient saviour. Secondly, in verse 4, Peter talks of precious promises. Throughout the the New Testament, there's there's, there's an idea of, of now and not yet when it comes to describing salvation and the process of um, becoming holy. The New Testament makes it clear that we have been saved now, but we're not in heaven yet. And this here is is, um, another one of those now and not yet things. Peter looks forward 
to the day when we will participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption um, in the world caused by evil desires. So what does it mean to participate in the divine nature? Well, I think the rest of the verse there, in verse 4, gives us a clue. Actually, what, he's, what it means to participate in a divine nature, he's talking about immortality and incorruptibility. Peter's saying that we have the promise that one day we will be immortal and incorruptible. In other words, he's saying one day we will be utterly perfect with God in heaven forever. So as we struggle this side of heaven, we can take great encouragement from the fact that one day we will be perfect with God in heaven. And again, all this is totally and utterly dependent on Christ and his death on the cross in our place. Nothing else. So in Christ we have absolutely everything we need And we can be sure of the fact that one day we'll be perfect. So Peter begins by encouraging us to become in practice what we are already in God's sight. Christ is the basis and foundation of the Christian life. It's through him we began and it's through his power and and enabling through the cross that we continue. So Peter encourages us to look back at the grace that we've been shown and live worthy of it. That's, That's to be our motivation as we seek to live out the true Christian life. Before he asks us to do anything, he reminds us of what God has already done for us. So what are the implications of this? His grace frees us to live for him. We don't do good things to try and please God and to earn salvation. We have been saved by grace alone. So now we obey him in the light of the grace that we've been shown. Sometimes we can become so overburdened with our, with our sinfulness, we can just get in a, a rut of, of despair and of guilt and of misery. How could I have done that sin again? We feel that sometimes we, we've, we keep on praying the same prayer for forgiveness and that we've prayed it so many times now, surely it's, it must be it feels insincere. We've lost sight of the glorious truth of the gospel. We've been forgiven. Our sin has been dealt with once and for all. Jesus triumphed over death and sin on the cross. And we need to get that inside our heads. It's done. We're forgiven. Nothing can change that. God 
has made his decision in his courtroom and nothing can overturn it. No matter how we feel, nothing can change the facts of the matter. So actually, when we wallow around in self-pity and guilt, feeling sorry for ourselves, we're slapping grace in the face. I'm not saying that sin isn't serious. Don't get me wrong, because the cross shows us once and for all how seriously God takes sin. But what I'm saying is that we need to accept grace and forgiveness and move on. God doesn't highlight sin in our lives in order to condemn us. He highlights the sin in our lives in order to draw us to him. So do you see how God's grace that he's shown us frees us to live for him in his way? Our performance doesn't determine God's acceptance of us. We don't have to worry about whether we're doing enough to get into God's good books. We're accepted and forgiven already. And one day we will be utterly perfect. And it's all through his grace and his goodness seen in Jesus. So in the light of those incredible truths, Peter urges us to make every effort to add these, these list of virtues to our faith. Not in order to get right with God, but because we're right with him already. So just take a, list, a look at, the, at this list in verses 5 to, to 7. Faith is right at the top of the list. And love is the one that uh, is the, uh, the, the crowning one, the one that encompasses all the others. But verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. The word add here is probably a, a weak translation for what Peter was, what really meant. The word is actually a, a quite vivid metaphor drawn from um, Athenian theatre, actually. Apparently, the uh, choreographers, however you say that, was, uh, were, were rich individuals who provided all the equipment and all the training and all the pay of the, of the, the chorus in a particular play that was happening. And the choreographers would, would try to outdo each other on the generosity stakes. Uh, they, they would just throw as much money as they could towards the, you know, having the best equipment and giving the most generous wages to the chorus. That's the word that Peter's got in mind here. So it's not a kind of mechanical adding of goodness to faith. But it's a lavish, generous cooperation. And as you look down this list, you'll see that actually it's a, it completes a perfect whole. There's complete balance here between internal character and external behaviour. 
And each one of these things flows nicely onto the next. And uh, as we go through, uh, we won't have time to draw out all the, the specific applications for all these things. Maybe that's something you can do in uh, home groups. But as, as I go through, do reflect on these virtues and think about, are there ones here that actually I need to, to really be working on? So first of all, add to your faith goodness. Goodness here is the same word as used in verse 3, talking about Jesus' goodness. It's that active word. Peter is not after a, a, a dry, drab, dreary faith. He's after a vibrant, active, selfless faith that seeks the good of others before ourselves. So we're to add goodness to faith. And to goodness we're to add knowledge. And knowledge was again a big thing for the the false teachers here. But the type of knowledge that that Peter's after here is is a knowledge that understands the, the, the truth of the gospel. And it's vital that we do know the truth. We'll go on to thinking about false teaching in, uh, in later weeks. But it's clear that we need to work hard to know the truth and understanding God's word in order to prevent us from slipping into the error of false teaching. To knowledge, we're to add self-control. According to the false teachers, Knowledge made self-control obsolete. You didn't need to worry about morality and your lifestyle if you had knowledge. Peter says the opposite. Knowledge on, your, on its own can, can puff you up. Self-control in abundance can make a huge impact on your life and on your impact to other, to other people. To self-control, we're to add perseverance. Well, it's one thing to be um, self-controlled for a short while, but it's quite another thing to show self-control for sustained periods of time. To perseverance, godliness. And the word here that Peter uses brings out the idea of a reverent awe of God. There's a sense in which we're to have that, that all these different aspects are to be um, worked at and worked with, with, with reverence and utmost respect for God. To godliness, brotherly kindness. Well, everyone hates the the self-righteous. And self-control and and godliness by themselves could lead to making you just into some kind of modern-day Pharisee. Peter's clear. We need to add brotherly kindness. We need to have love for the family of believers. Even for those we find it difficult to love. 
And finally, to brotherly kindness, we're to add love. Well, love in the Bible is, is never a kind of love that is pink and fluffy and that kind of thing. Love in the Bible is always tough love. It is selfless. It is self-sacrificial. It seeks the good of others rather than itself. And often when the Bible talks about love, in the next sentence, it talks about Jesus and his death on the cross as the, the perfect example of that kind of love. So that's the love. These are the, the virtues that Peter is, is calling us to. This is, what, this is the content of true Christian living. And what a thing to strive for. But then look at what he goes on to say in verses 8 and 9. Let me just read them again. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is short-sighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. So Peter is saying, if we live like this, it will protect us from becoming unproductive and ineffective. And verse 9, if anyone does not have these things, he is short-sighted and blind. And when I first read this, I thought, how can someone be short-sighted and blind? Um, it just didn't seem to make sense. But if you, uh, apparently the, the word for short-sighted here can also be um, translated as, as shut your eyes. And if you combine that with what's, what it says in the, uh, in the second half of verse 9, someone who has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins, it begins to, to make sense. Peter's saying that someone who doesn't love, live like this is someone who has deliberately turned their back on their conversion and on, on, their, on their new life. They've consciously shut their eyes to God's grace. Again, he's reinforcing the point that these characteristics should naturally flow out from us because of the new status we have as Christians. These are the, the fruit that comes from us being rooted in Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves if we can't see this fruit in our lives, is it because we've moved away from grace? Or is it because we've never really accepted grace? in the first place. So after dealing with the basis of the true Christian life and outlining the content of the true Christian life, he goes on to the, the results. Verses 10 and 11. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall and you will receive a rich welcome in the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. 
So the first result that he wants, that, that comes about, is assurance. In verse 10. But, but what does he mean in verse 10? How, how is it that we make our calling and election sure? Is it possible for us to do that? Surely it's God that does that. Well, these two verses don't in any way contradict or go against anything that Peter's been saying so far or indeed what is taught throughout the rest of the New Testament. He's not saying that we are to make ourselves Christian and then make sure of the fact that we are Christians. But rather, what he's saying is that election and calling In other words, salvation is entirely God's work. And our lifestyle, a changed lifestyle, is the proof of what God's already done in us. And as we've already seen, it's also by his grace that we grow and change in our lifestyle. But here, and again in in, in verse 5, we are still responsible for making every effort to, to become more like Jesus wants us to be. But God wants us to have nothing less than, than full assurance that we are his, that we are saved and that one day we will be perfect. And what Peter's saying is that if we increasingly see these things in our lives then we can, we can be sure that we are saved. And, uh, at the end of verse 10, if you do these things, you will never fall. That actually, um, yeah, we, we, we will never cease to persevere in the Christian faith. So that's the, one of the, the first results, assurance that God wants us to have. The second is a glorious future. Look at verse 11. If you do these things, you will never fall and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Peter just piles up the adjectives here to, to, to give the image of a, of a hero's welcome. So, uh, think of the Olympics. Think of Kelly Holmes coming back to her hometown on an open top bus with her gold medals and everyone on the streets just, just um, yeah, cheering her on. That's the kind of image that Peter is wanting to evoke here. But it's, it's God wanting to give a rich welcome to us. Oh, Peter's talked already of, about how generously and abundantly we are to, to add these virtues to our faith. He now uses that same kind of image, that same metaphor of um, lavishness and abundance and generosity. But this time, it's, it's God who lavishes us with, with a rich welcome. And again, it's all through God's grace. So Peter then sandwiches 
the, uh, the content of the true Christian life in between reminding us of the basis of the Christian life and the incredible grace that, that, that God has shown us and at the same time showing us the glorious future that we have. So what does this all mean for us? Well, I was quite interested as I was uh, studying this when I came across a story that a philosopher once told. He told about uh, a country that was just full of ducks. Um, Only ducks lived in this particular country. And one Sunday, all the ducks waddled into their church and the preacher opened up the, the duck Bible and preached and uh, told them that, that ducks, you have wings. You can fly. You can soar on your wings like eagles. And the, the, the duck congregation were, Amen, Amen, yes. Preach it, brother, yes. And then after the service, they just waddled off home. It's one thing to know the truth. It's another thing to act on it. And that is what Peter is urging these Christians to do. That is what the true Christian life is all about. And frankly, that's what people in our messed up postmodern society need to see. They need to see men and women of integrity who have found the truth and who are living it out. So the challenge is, how are you doing on that score? Have you taken hold of God's grace? Have you forgotten God's grace? And are these qualities in verses 5 to 7 increasingly working their way out in our lives? Well, as we finish, I'm just going to um, read some of these things out again. And just in in, the quiet and in, um, in prayer, let's just ask God to increasingly help us to live out the true Christian life. So let's pray. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love 
Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that Jesus' death on the cross is all-sufficient, that we have everything we need for salvation and everything we need for our sanctification. Father, help us to be motivated by your grace to, to live out some of these things increasingly. I pray that you would show us where we need to change and give us the strength to make those changes. Help us, Lord, to, to live in the light of the glorious future we have ahead of us as well. Help us to be your ambassadors in this world. So Father, we just ask these things in, in your name and for your glory. Amen.